Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome, and the myths and legends of Europe. As many of you know, I am a member of the History Podcasters Group. From time to time we release special episodes, focusing on a specific theme from history. I took it upon myself to expand this idea slightly, and what you will now hear is an episode which I call Links in the Chain of History. It takes a 28-minute journey through some specifically linked historical events. I do hope you enjoy it, and I'd be really grateful for any feedback. If you'd like to give feedback, then please go to my website, www.mythandhistory.podbean.com, contact me by email, mythandhistory at gmail.com, or find me on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History. Also, if you do enjoy the show and would think of making a donation, I'd be really grateful. I'm coming up to the time of year when I have to renew my hosting fee, and I really would be grateful for any donation that anyone could make. You'll find a donation button on the website for both of the podcasts. So, without further ado, here's the episode. Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. I'm Benjamin. And I'm Adam. Talking history, the Italian unification. Sharon Astor from History of the Crusades. Jamie Redford from the Arab Spring, the history. Peter Adamson, the History of Philosophy podcast. Steve, the History of the Papacy podcast. Jordan Harbour. Twilight Histories Podcast. David Appleson, the Podcast of Doom. Royfield Brown from How Jamaica Conquered the World. Kate McDonald, why I really like this book. Michael Annis, the Space Rocket History Podcast. Isaac Meyer from the History of Japan Podcast. Joey Brunel, Born Yesterday. Mike Zulkowski, John McIver, Scott Elfstrom. Come and take it. Zach Twomley of the When Diplomacy Fails podcast. Paul Vincent, the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Travis Dow and Pete Coleman, history of alchemy. We are the history podcasters. We shall never surrender. My name's Paul Vincent, and I'm the host of two bi-weekly podcasts. The first, the myths and history of Greece and Rome, is a journey through the mythology and history of those two great civilizations. The second... The Legends of King Arthur and His Knights is a retelling of that most famous of British legends. Both of them can be enjoyed by adults and children alike. Today's show, though, is a bit of a departure. Specially created for the History Podcasters Network, welcome to Links in the Chain of History. Circling the Sun between the orbits of Jupiter and Mars is the collection of small heavenly bodies which we call the Asteroid Belt. There are more than 400,000 minor planets, and they vary in size from a few hundred kilometres in diameter to small chunks of rock. The minor planets discovered first were given mythological names to keep them in line with their more senior brethren. In 1867, though, asteroid 45 was given the name Eugenie, after the wife of Napoleon III. This rather politically motivated naming was just the first of many thousands. Now... Most of the known minor planets are named for real people. In 1960, asteroid 5451 was discovered and given the name Plato, after, of course, the ancient Greek philosopher. It seems a bit harsh on one of the world's greatest philosophers that he had to wait until 1960 before getting his own asteroid. Many more obscure people were honoured before him. Asteroid 153, for example, was named Hilda on its discovery in 1875 after the daughter of the astronomer Theodore von Olpolzer. 
just a tad more obscure than poor old Plato. Now, Plato had much to say on many things. He's considered to be the founder of Western philosophy for many good reasons. In fact, the English mathematician and philosopher Alfred North Whitehead famously described Western philosophy as a series of footnotes to Plato. Plato was one of the first men known to have tried to formulate his thoughts on ethics. Again, there's a whole raft of various discourses, but one of the most interesting is Plato's views on the relationship between ethics and the gods. This is epitomised by the Euthyphro dilemma. This conundrum is part of one of Plato's dialogues. In it, Plato has his mentor Socrates debate with a man named Euthyphro, the link between the gods and what is right and wrong. Euthyphro tells Socrates that what is morally good is what is loved by the gods. What he means, effectively, is that good actions are defined by, by what the gods would command. Something is good because the gods have commanded it. Plato has Socrates pose questions to Euthyphro and tie him up in logical knots, which was just what Socrates liked to do. First, he gets the poor man to admit the gods don't always agree, and so there are many things which may be commanded by one god but rejected by another. Therefore, something which falls into this category is both pious and impious at the same time, both morally good and morally bad, and surely this is impossible. Euthyphro then argues that something is morally good if it is agreed upon and commanded by all of the gods. Socrates points out that this is all a bit arbitrary, and surely the gods would have a reason for loving or commanding something. So, therefore, something which is morally good must be inherently good, and that is precisely why it is loved by the gods. Euthyphro agrees, despite the fact that this is a horribly circular argument when added to his previous point. And this is the Euthyphro dilemma. Is something morally good because it's commanded or loved by the gods, or is it commanded or loved by the gods because it is morally good? This problem has taxed religious scholars ever since. The dilemma is even starker for monotheistic religions. With only one god, the problem of the gods disagreeing is removed, and the question simply becomes, is something morally good because God commands it, or does God command something because it is morally good? Both Christianity and Islam have had scholars on each side of the dilemma. There are a number of problems with both sides of the issue. If God is bound by inherent morality, then surely he cannot be omnipotent. On the other hand, if what is morally good is simply what's commanded by God, then anything goes. We could carry out mass murder or any other crime on the whim of God. Much classical theistic thought rejects the very idea of the Euthyphro dilemma. In their eyes, God created all that there is, so there is no need for him to be bound by or to create any morality. It simply is what it is because God made it. This viewpoint is very much supported in Jewish thought. However, the Euthyphro dilemma is still there, and it's Plato that brought it to our attention. The great man's teachings and Greek learning in general became widespread in the Greece of the early 4th century BC. Sometime around 390, he opened a college for scholarship where, no doubt, items such as the Euthyphro dilemma were discussed and debated at length. The college was known as Plato's Academy. Aristotle studied there for 20 years and many other leading men of Athens were alumni. The academy stood for 300 years before being destroyed by the Roman general Lucius Cornelius Sulla and his army when they laid siege to the city in 86 BC. The building may have gone, but the studying continued. 
In the early 400s AD, a group of philosophers known as the Neoplatonists refounded the Academy in Athens and reinvigorated the study of philosophy. By that time, though, the world was a very different place. Athens was part of the fracturing Roman Empire, and the empire was a Christian empire. Still, learning flourished in the new school. This Neoplatonic Academy was formally closed in 529 by the Roman Emperor Justinian. This has been seen as a victory for Christian intolerance over the enlightened scholarship of antiquity. While this may seem to have the ring of truth about it, it's not too likely. Justinian was a Christian, of course, but he wasn't particularly hard-line. He married an actress and heretic called Theodora, and he employed many useful pagans. It's more likely that he didn't want the competition. He'd just founded a new university in his capital, Constantinople. It didn't fit in with his world view that the greatest seat of learning in his empire was in Athens, rather than his glorious capital. The university in Constantinople was just a small part of the emperor's plans. Justinian was a voracious builder. He was probably the last Roman emperor who genuinely dreamed of reuniting the whole of the former Roman territory and regaining the empire's lost strength. The city of Rome had been lost along with the entire Western Empire in the 470s, although the end had been coming for nearly a century. Under the focused and determined rule of this son of low-born parents, people were allowed to think big again. Justinian sent his brilliant general Belisarius to Italy and Rome was retaken, along with much of the rest of the peninsula and a good chunk of southern Spain and North Africa. Justinian wanted his capital to match the magnificence of his achievements and he set about a building programme to make it even more superb than it already was. The crowning glory was the Church of St Sophia, known to us as the Hagia Sophia. Two great architects were found and ordered to design the greatest church in the world. The orders were clear, if a little grandiose. The church must be the epitome of the glory of God and the supremacy of Christianity. Justinian said they could design it as they liked as long as they stuck to two instructions. It must be the most magnificent church the world had ever seen and it must be completed as quickly as possible. Justinian was already 50 years old and wanted to have time to enjoy his glories and he had plenty more glories planned. 10,000 men were employed to build the church. They were split into two teams. 5,000 started at the south end and 5,000 at the north and they had a competition to see who could finish first. In the end, the building took just five years. This was amazing. Westminster Abbey in London was constructed more than 500 years later and it took 33 years to finish. When it was completed, the new Saint Sophia was indeed the most magnificent church in the world and would remain so for hundreds of years. The dome was 107 feet high, decorated in simple crosses and covered completely in gold. It was said that it seemed to float above the ground as if suspended from heaven on a golden chain. There were countless candles and lamps which gave the inside a beautiful glow, lighting up the glittering mosaics. It is also said the imperial door was made from wood from Noah's Ark and the high altar contained Christian relics like the nails which fixed Jesus to the cross and, of course, the true cross itself. Justinian was delighted. According to the historian Procopius, he stood at the centre of his new perfect church and declared, Solomon, I have outdone thee. His new cathedral was better, he thought, than the original Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. This possibly mythical edifice had been destroyed at least a thousand years before, so Justinian's claim was untestable. The magnificence of the Hagia Sophia 
stood as the emblem of the Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire and the symbol of Orthodox Christianity for nearly a thousand years. Justinian died in 565, but his legacy to the world is still there where he built it today. Its symbolism, though, changed utterly. In 1453, the world was altered forever when Constantinople fell to the Turks. The rise of Islam dealt a devastating blow to the empire in the 7th century, and it lost a lot of territory never to regain it. First the Arabs and then the Turks became its most formidable enemies. The empire held its own for a while and even regained some of its former strength in the 9th and 10th centuries under the Macedonian dynasty. After the death of Basil II, known as the Bulgar Slayer though, infighting and decay set in. By the beginning of the 15th century, the writing was on the wall. It just needed somebody to read it. Sultan Mehmet II was a singularly determined man. A devout Muslim and very well educated, he was 22 years old and he ascended to the throne of the Ottoman Empire in 1451. He only had one aim in mind for his reign. He was going to deliver the final blow to the Roman Empire and capture Constantinople for himself. Once he had it, he would turn it into the capital of his own empire. In January 1453, he gathered his ministers together. The Roman Empire, he said, was still a threat. It may consist of little more than the city, but at any time the Italians or Franks might arrive and give assistance. The Ottoman Empire would never be safe until Constantinople was in his hands. The time to act was now. Less than three months later, a huge army set up camp outside Constantinople. A mighty navy containing over a hundred ships sailed up to the sea walls. An enormous cannon, 27 feet long, which could fire stone balls wearing over a ton up to a mile, was positioned ready to attack the land walls. Mehmet was enormously proud of his cannon. Day after day, it punched holes in the walls of Constantinople, holes which the defenders rushed to plug. On May the 26th, Mehmet II called his ministers to see him again. He announced the siege had gone on long enough. A few of his older generals thought he meant he was giving up and going home. This is not what Mehmet intended at all. He announced there would be a day of preparations and then a day of prayer and then the final attack would begin. He would take Constantinople and destroy the empire on Tuesday the 29th of May 1453. He didn't try to keep the plan a secret and the defenders prepared for the savage assault to come. On Monday the 28th, the Turks began their day of prayer and the cannons stopped firing. Everything was quiet. As the evening approached, the people of the city began to make their way to the Hagia Sophia. Once the service was over, the Emperor Constantine XI went back to his palace and said goodbye to his household. He knew the end was coming. Mehmet didn't even wait till the sun came up. At 1.30 in the morning, the assault began. The cannon fire was concentrated on one section of the wall. For three hours, Mehmet sent wave after wave of Turkish soldiers against the same piece of wall. Each time they were driven back. Constantine seemed to be everywhere at once, raising morale and urging his men to carry on fighting. Mehmet, though, saw his chance and launched a wave of janissaries, his shock troops. They overran many of the towers and trapped the defenders before beginning the slaughter. The walls had been breached at last and the Turks streamed in. Constantine XI saw what had happened and he knew all hope was gone and that Constantinople was lost. He had promised not to desert his people and he kept his word. He shouted, The city has fallen, but I am alive. He then threw off his imperial regalia and dived into the fighting where it was at its fiercest. 
he was never seen again. The Turks screamed into the city, killing and looting as they went. The Imperial Palace was wrecked. The survivors ran to their homes to protect their families. In the Hagia Sophia, a service was being held. The doors of the great church were closed and barricaded, and the service went on. The Turks burst in, killed most of the congregation and the priests, and stole the valuables. After three days, Mehmet ordered the sack of Constantinople to be stopped. The city would be rebuilt and would be the capital of his empire, and he wanted there to be enough left to rebuild. The Hagia Sophia, symbol of Orthodox Christianity, was converted into a mosque. In the 20th century, the founder of modern Turkey, Kamil Atatürk, converted it into a less contentious museum. The fall of Constantinople may have been a disaster for the Byzantines, but there were positive consequences for others. The great city had been a centre of learning for 1,100 years and contained secrets undiscovered in the West. Many of the works of Plato and other philosophers were unknown to the scholars of Western Europe. The Renaissance was well underway and the works were translated and devoured by Italian scholars. However, these plus points were lost in the reaction to the conquest. The fall of Constantinople shocked the world. The city had stood as the capital of the Roman Empire for 1,100 years. There appeared to be now no buffer between the Turkish advance and the kingdoms of Western Europe. There were no newspapers and certainly no internet to give people an outlet to express their feelings. It is clear the letter pages of the British tabloids would have been full of vitriol had the letters pages existed. Humanity is ever ingenious though and people always find a way to ensure that their voices are heard. Hanging in the National Gallery in London are hundreds of masterpieces of Renaissance art. A visit to what is one of the world's great collections can be overwhelming and it's difficult to pick out specific works to view more closely. A gallery guide will often be seen explaining the finer points of Holbein's The Ambassadors or Titian's Bacchus and Ariadne. One of the very fine masterpieces which is often overlooked in these tours of the great works hangs in room 62. Andrea Mantegna was born in the Republic of Venice in 1431. He was the son of a woodcutter, but was adopted by the artist and founder of the Paduan school, Francisco Squaccioni, aged about ten. This is probably because his amazing talent was spotted at this tender age. Mantegna studied under Squaccioni, and by the age of seventeen had founded his own workshop and was receiving commissions. Very unusual for such a young man. He began the fresco decoration of the Ovatari Chapel in the Eremitani Church in Padua in 1449, still aged only 18. There, he depicted the stories of St James and St Christopher on the southern and northern walls. Mantegna was at the forefront of the Renaissance in northern Italy. He could render a scene with stunning accuracy and precision, but still convey emotion and majesty in his work. He was a pioneer of the worm's eye view, which is the opposite of the bird's eye view. The subject or scene is presented from below, as a worm would see it. This allows the artist to create a sense of greatness and give things a monumental appearance. In room 62 of the National Gallery hangs Mantegna's Agony in the Garden. The subject itself is quite a common one. Jesus is depicted praying while some of his disciples sleep. In the background, Judas and some Roman soldiers are on their way to arrest him. Further in the background, on a hill above the scene, is a city. The city is meant to represent Jerusalem. The Agony in the Garden was painted in 1459, give or take a year or two. This was just six years after the fall of Constantinople 
and the terrible event would still have been in the front of the minds of the educated people of Italy. Byzantine scholars would have begun appearing in Italy, providing a constant reminder of what had happened. Artists are affected by their environment, and it's common for them to leave subtle clues as to their feelings in their work. It's been argued, particularly by Michael Vickers, that the city in the background of Mantegna's depiction is actually Constantinople. There are a number of buildings in the painting that give the hint of origins different from Jerusalem. In fact, the city looks nothing like Jerusalem would have done at the time. There is a domed church, maybe representing the Hagia Sophia. There is an equestrian statue, probably of Justinian, standing in front of the dome. It is, though, the walls around the city which most closely resemble their real counterparts. Anyone who visits Istanbul today will be overwhelmed by the immense size and air of power that emanates from the remaining sections. Mantegna's painting shows walls which are punctuated by large square towers, just like Constantinople's finally breached defences. On the top of the domed church and other towers are Turkish crescents. The depiction of the moon appears today on the flag of Turkey and is supposed to represent the phase of the moon on the early morning of the 29th of May 1453 when the mighty forces of Mehmet II took the city. These crescents turn the towers into minarets. This is a clear reference to the formerly Christian city being lost to Islam. Mantegna has left us a commentary on what was in the news at the time. A significant collection of Mantegna's work hangs in the world's galleries and we can get a good appreciation of him as an artist. Unfortunately, the frescoes in the Ovatari Chapel that he completed at the beginning of his career do not survive intact. On March 11, 1944, an American bombing raid by B-17 units of the 15th Army Air Force attempted to obliterate marshalling yards near Padua. A stray bomb scored a direct hit on the Ovatari Chapel and completely destroyed it reducing Mantegna's magnificent frescoes to piles of rubble. The restoration of the chapel itself began almost immediately, but there was nothing that could be done with the fragments of masonry that used to be beautiful frescoes. Nothing, that is, until 2006, when the 113 cases containing 80,000 pieces were subjected to a new mathematical technique. Algorithms, along with old photographs of the frescoes, were used to accurately allocate the fragments to their original positions. The pieces, ranging in size from the size of a small paperback book to wood chips, were placed in their correct locations and laid over a virtual image, giving some idea of what the fresco cycle would have looked like. The Second World War was a confusing and complicated thing, and the destruction of a fresco is one relatively small consequence. Every day of the conflict was filled with loss, small and large, human and material. On the same day as Mantegna's 500-year-old work was being smashed to smithereens, a human tragedy was taking place on the other side of Europe. Johan, or Joop Westerveel, was born in Zutphen in the Netherlands in 1899. He grew up a pacifist. After an unsuccessful stint working in the Dutch East Indies, he returned to the Netherlands and became a teacher. He believed in non-violence, but was vehemently opposed to the anti-Semitism, which was very evident in neighbouring Germany. By the outbreak of World War II, he was arranging for the safe reception of German and Polish Jews, mostly children, in the Netherlands. In 1940, Joop and his wife, Will, moved to Rotterdam, and he became principal of one of the Montessori schools. Despite having four children of their own to look after, they dedicated their lives to helping others, and formed what became known as the Westerveel Group. 
This small Dutch resistance group, containing Jews and non-Jews, continued their work after the Netherlands was occupied by German troops. Realising that Jewish people would no longer be safe in their home country, they arranged escape routes. It's estimated that a total of between three and 400 people were smuggled out of Germany and escorted through Belgium and France to Switzerland or on to Spain. Not all of the missions were successful. In 1942, eight Jewish SKPs and their escorts were caught on the Dutch-Belgian border and sent to Auschwitz. Veal was arrested in December 1943 and sent to the Vught concentration camp. Following his wife's imprisonment, Joop, realising his own arrest was probably just a matter of time, placed his four children into hiding with friends of the family. He quit his post at the Montessori school and went underground. On March the 11th, 1944, as the American bombs were destroying Mantegna's masterpiece, Joop and his co-worker, Berke Kerning, were caught at the Belgian border with two Jewish women whom they were escorting to freedom. Joop was removed to Vught and tortured. He soon became a spiritual leader for many of the prisoners. Reportedly, his unfailing high spirits in the face of cruel interrogation and the prospect of execution gave those around him hope and strength. In August 1944, Joop Westerveel was executed in the Vught concentration camp. Veal witnessed her husband's execution, but she survived the war. Theirs is one of thousands of little-known heroic stories which punctuate the horror of the Second World War. Their actions had no effect on the outcome of the conflict, but salvaged the lives of a few of its victims. One of their children, Marta, later settled in Israel. There she met a number of the people her father had rescued. In a way, she explained, she envied them. She knew what they'd been through, but they had known her father, if briefly. She hadn't. She'd only been five years old when Yup was arrested and had virtually no recollection of him. But at least she was alive when VE Day finally arrived. Another Dutch girl, ten years her senior, was not so lucky. It wouldn't have been beyond the bounds of possibility that Anne Frank and Yup Westerveel could have met. The Frank family left Germany in 1933, a few years before Joop started to smuggle Jews out of the country. Anne enrolled in a Montessori school in the Netherlands, but in Amsterdam, not Rotterdam. Once the Germans had occupied the Netherlands, the Frank family were no longer safe. In July 1942, they moved into a secret annex in a house in Amsterdam, forced to hide because of their religious beliefs. For two years they remained concealed, hoping to survive the war so they could continue to live their lives. We know this because of the famous diary that Anne wrote during the family's enforced confinement. We also know that their endeavour was ultimately unsuccessful. In August 1944, a few months after Joop Westerveel was arrested, the Frank family was discovered. They were arrested and removed to concentration camps. Anne Frank died in the Bergen-Belsen camp a few weeks before it was liberated by British troops. Formal records and eyewitness reports are so sketchy and chaotic for that time that it is not known exactly how she expired. Contemplation of ethics and whether moral goodness is defined by the gods or inherent went out of the window during the war in Europe. The luxury of moral contemplation was unaffordable. Anne Frank had to endure the terror of potential discovery and imminent death every day for two years. Her moral compass was more simply configured. As she put it herself, Sometimes I think God is trying to test me, both now and in the future. I'll have to become a good person on my own, without anyone to serve as a model or advise me, but it'll make me stronger in the end. 
but she has one thing in common with Plato. In 1995, asteroid 5535 was named Anne Frank. Perhaps under the circumstances this is fitting. One of the greatest minds of all time, who helped shape the ethical thinking of the world, shares the sky with a heroic victim of one of man's most chilling ideological crimes. Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. I'm Benjamin. And I'm Adam. Talking history, the Italian unification. Sharon Eastor from History of the Crusades. Jamie Redford from the Arab Spring, the History. Peter Adamson, the History of Philosophy podcast. Steve, the History of the Papacy podcast. Jordan Harbour. Twilight Histories Podcast. David Appleson, the Podcast of Doom. Royfield Brown from How Jamaica Conquered the World. Kate McDonald, why I really like this book. Michael Annis, the Space Rocket History Podcast. Isaac Meyer from the History of Japan Podcast. Joey Brunel, born yesterday. Mike Zulkowski, John McIver, Scott Elfstrom. Come and take it. Zach Twomley of the When the Bones Fails podcast. Paul Vincent, the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Travis Dow and Pete Coleman, history of alchemy. We are the history podcasters. We shall never surrender. Oh, yeah, you.